In college, I, I had this roommate who was a, he was a film and uh, I think it was like film and computer science. He wanted to do like game design story, like write stories for games. And he kind of, he had this weird thing. He, he like saw me as the, the Matrix guy, like the guy who's really into the Matrix. And uh, I guess I was, I don't know. I mean, I, I love the Matrix and I think there's all kinds of funny uh, things that come from, that you can see in that story. And if you don't know the story behind the Matrix, like really briefly, there's this guy, Neo, he lives in like a computer simulated world. He gets like woken up out of it and realizes that the world is run by robots who are keeping him in that computer simulated world, right? There's all these interesting like illustrations and pictures we get of what it's like to move from one existence into another existence and see that like everything we knew is different. The rules have changed. Existence as we know it is totally different. We're going to kind of be thinking along those lines here this morning. Now, it's, um, it's been a while, uh, but one of our elders, Josh Spare, I don't, I don't think he's here uh, this morning. One of their sons had, had surgery um, this week, so keep them in your prayers. But um, he's been leading us through the, uh, the book of 1 John, a letter that John wrote. John was one of the apostles closest to Jesus during his ministry. And um, throughout John's writings, like he wrote the, the gospel, um, uh, according to John, the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation, kind of one of the central strands of his writing is this idea of love. But it wasn't just this thing that John spoke about theoretically. It was something he had tasted and experienced. So much so that in his gospel, when he's telling about Jesus' life, he refers to himself not as John, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, he knew to his bones that Jesus loved him so much to the point where, like, that's how he identified himself. Now, we left off, um, Josh left off in a section where John is describing the children of God. Behold, John says, like, yo, check this out. See what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's marveling that not only we should be called that, but that we actually are that. Beloved, we are God's children now, he writes. And so if we think about that, we, we pose the question um, to that truth, like, what then do children of God look and act like? We could say that the whole of chapter 3 here is kind of working out the answer to this question in a few different ways. Now, the first part, what Josh led us through, it was probably a couple months ago. Uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of recap here. Um, it was sort of the, the, the first answer to this question, uh, and kind of in the negative. Like, what, what do the... What do God's children look like? Well, they don't make a practice of sinning. Now, he's not saying they don't sin, right? Earlier in the same letter, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But rather, he's saying the children of God don't make their home there. They aren't comfortable in it, you know. The, um, it's not... It's not the existence they primarily live in. So perhaps they're, they're in sin, but the spirit in them convicts them and they are led to confession and repentance. 
Or maybe um, they're in sin and they're temporarily blinded by it, but a friend comes to them with a rebuke, with a word of caution, and because they are God's children, the spirit in them softens their heart. It receives that rebuke, and it brings conviction and repentance, like the prophet Nathan going to King David, right? The children of God ultimately don't make a practice of sinning. That's not what they are about. That's not the skill they are trying to hone. And so if if this last section was the answer to that question in the negative, um, what we just read this morning is maybe much more the answer in the positive. So what do the children of God look like we could answer, they are children of love in, in every sense of the word. So we're, we're going to look at this in, in kind of two points. Um, the first is that we are children who love. And the second is that we are children in love. So we're children of love because we are children who love and children who are in love. Love. So let's look at uh, this first idea here. We are children who love. Now, if you have some familiarity uh, with the New Testament, uh, you might have noticed, like, John's writing is pretty different from, say, like, uh, well, the Apostle Paul is a clear example, right? Paul uh, wrote Romans, Ephesians, uh, Galatians, several other of these epistles, and, and usually he goes like this. He spends like the first half saying like, da-da-da-da-da, like this is what's true, this is what Jesus has done, and then second half is like, therefore, you do X, Y, Z, right? Response, like indicative, imperative, we might say. Um, it's like a straight line, right? Now, John, you might have even just noticed this in this little section, it does not feel like a straight line. Uh, he kind of drifts along. He like circles around this theme, and then he bops over here and says this, and then he kind of comes back over here and, and circles back around here. And it seemed like he's just going all over the place. Um, you remember? Maybe you did this in high school. We did this like experiment where um, we had a penny and a feather inside a vacuum tube together. And uh, the point was to show that uh, acceleration due to gravity is, well, at least for like high school classroom purposes, constant. I just want to say, I'm really self-conscious making a science illustration in a room where like people have advanced degrees that let you go blow things up at Sandia or whatever. Um, yeah, but, but the feather and the coin in the vacuum tube, they follow the same speed because air resistance has been taken out of the picture, right? And I think sometimes we want to come to the word of God, and we want to suck the air out of the tube and get all of scripture to go in that straight line, to go the exact same way, the exact same path, exact same speed. But the reality is, is that God did not reveal his word in a vacuum, but through real human people as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we get real divine inspiration, real word of God, but with personality, even proclivity and idiosyncrasy and style. And this is all by God's choosing. And so we should not try to flatten that. So we're going to try not to flatten that this morning. Maybe by Paul's standards, I am preaching this sermon out of order. 
But we're just going to go with John's train of thought here. And his first idea is that those who have been born again as children of God love their brothers and sisters. This is what they look like. This is what defines them. Now that sounds simple enough, but let's ask two questions of that. First, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Um, Second, who are the brothers? Okay, first, what does John mean by love? So he points to two examples. Example one is Cain, who murdered his brother. Now Cain, if you don't know, uh, was the very first human by normal procreation, right? Adam and Eve together bore their first son, Cain, and then they had their second son, Abel. The the Bible tells us uh, in the very first book, Genesis chapter 4. And so one day, Cain and Abel are bringing the offerings of their labor to God in sacrifice. And Cain, we read, brings, uh, Genesis says, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. So we could say Cain brings something and Abel brings the absolute best somethings he can bring. And so God has regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. And so Cain grows angry and he kills his brother Abel. He hated his brother, and this hatred, it grows into this full, ripe fruit of physical murder of his own brother. So John points to this example, and he says, don't be like Cain. This is not a picture of love. This is not what the children of God look like. Don't be like this. And you and I say, okay, well... um, I mean, my my body count is zero, so it looks like I'm in the clear here. Except for this one complicating line in verse 15, John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John is recalling the teaching of Jesus on murder. Matthew 5 The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And John teases this out saying that hatred is murder. And the point is that where there is hatred, where there is this unrighteous anger, there's this contempt, right? Contempt is the, that says, you fool. There is not love. There's actually like this heart murder going on in there. Now, I don't know about you, but I can still read this, especially as it's tied to like the extreme example of Cain. And I think like, well, I'm a pretty nice guy. Uh, I'm not doing any like, you know, meditating on violence or anything crazy like that. But let's look, let's look at my anger uh, a little more closely. Let's kind of put it under the microscope. Um, 
Now, uh, a place where I can uh, sometimes get angry is Costco. That may surprise you. Maybe Costco is a uh, happy place for some of you. Samples, galore, whatever. Um, now, I, I used to love like the, the leisurely grocery shop as much as anyone. Um, I don't know, somewhere that changed. Um, but now, when I go to Costco, I am like, I'm like on a mission. I'm trying to get in and out with as much efficiency as possible. Um, I'm like not even smelling the samples. And so what happens is I go to Costco and I'm on this mission, in and out, right? And what I feel like is I'm more or less surrounded by these people who are doing, uh, at least this is, this is how they look from my vantage point, right? All right, they've got their cart and they're just like standing there and they're kind of looking around and they must be thinking like, you know, I don't know what I want to buy today. Oh, does that lady have pot stickers? I'm going to go over here and see if she's got pot stickers. Oh, they're not ready yet. I'm just going to go. I'm going to look at the oranges for a little while until they come out of the oven. And this is all happening in like the main traffic way. And anger builds up in my heart. The implicit thought there is these people, these people are in my way. And I wish they weren't here. Like, they're nothing but an impediment to me and my agenda. And at the core of this is actually this, this ugly posture of my heart that does not want others to have their equal place in the universe too, especially when it feels like it's at my expense. So hatred says, something's got to go here, something's got to give, and it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. It's murder in the heart. And John says, this is the way of death. This is not the way of those who have been raised to life. Those who have been brought to life by the Spirit, they won't persist in this way. This is not the way of love. And and so to contrast with this then, John gives us a second example to show us what love is. Verse 16, he says, By this we know what love is, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. So Jesus, at that same crossroads, because of our sin, doesn't say, something's got to give here, and it's going to be you. He says, it's going to be me. Even though he he would have been the, the one person to be able to say that and have the right to say that. So, you see, hate, hate makes the demand your life for my good. And love makes the offer my life for your good. And we see this most clearly in Jesus Christ, who offered his life as ransom payment, as, as acquittal for us. And so John says in verse 16, likewise, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so this brings us then to our second question about the commandment to love one another. Um, who is John talking about when he says the brothers? Now I'm going to try and like, Summarize this briefly here. Um, but we have to be careful asking this question. 
because a question very much like this prompted Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, usually, if, if Jesus responds to you in a parable, uh, your question maybe wasn't the best, <laughs> or there was something amiss in that question. Um, there's, a, there's a wrong way we can ask, who counts as my brothers? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Um, we're, we're asking the wrong question if we are looking for parameters on who we should love so that we can measure and, and make sure we're really doing awesome at the commandment to feel good about ourselves. It's one, one way we can ask the question wrongly. Um, we can ask that question wrongly if we're really just asking like, okay, so who do I actually have to love? Just give me the bare minimum. What John is pointing to is this idea that mutual love between Christians should be a defining characteristic of them. And again, I have to think that in John's mind, he's hearing Jesus' words. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when people outside the church look in, they should be like dumbfounded at the way we lay our lives down for each other, at the way our lives speak to one another, saying, my life for your good. I think... um, I felt this this week, I don't know, I just have a sense of like how, how far short of this we fall. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I go to uh, our, our denominations like General Assembly where all the pastors and elders from across the country get together once a year. And I go there and like the hair on the back of my neck is up. And I mean, if you think about it, like if, if, if Christians are my siblings then the the PCA General Assembly is like my crew of like a few thousand identical twins, right? (laughs) And yet I go in there and my radar is up like beeping for who might be an enemy. And I just have to think this must grieve the Holy Spirit so much when I close my heart against my brother like that. Little children, John writes, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. As we continue reading uh, this passage here, though, we see uh, that when John is telling us to love one another, he isn't giving this command in a vacuum. He's actually trying to show us that like, this isn't merely a command we follow, like a deed we do or a practice we make. I mean, it, it is those things, but it's actually part and parcel of a larger picture that he wants us to see. Now, this is, um, this is maybe a weird picture, but you can imagine the absolute futility of, of walking up to a human skeleton and commanding it to start exhaling. Right? Not, you're not even telling it to breathe, you're just telling it to exhale. But if we only hear from John, love one another, and we start there, that's basically what we're doing. 
right? There's a, there's a lot more that needs to be in the picture for this person to be able to exhale, right? They need a body, tissue, organs, blood, electrical pulses firing in their brain. And, and even, you know, in the Old Testament pictures we have of lifeless bodies coming to life, they require this even more final thing. They have to receive the breath of life from God. I think we can hear the commandment to love one another. Um, you know, just like it's, it's like this arbitrary thing, um, you know, remember Dwight Schrute's little song? Judson's not here to give my office references. Dwight Schrute, he heard growing up, learn your rules, you'd better learn your rules. If you don't, you'll be eaten in your sleep. <laughs> yeah. But the commandment to love one another isn't like that. It's not given just as this standalone thing. It's given in a new whole, vital atmosphere and story and existence. So now let's, let's try to probe into that idea a little bit more. And if you're, you're keeping score here, this is, this is heading number two, children in love. Um, we're children who love because we are children in love. Now what do I mean when I say the commandment to love one another isn't given in a vacuum? Well, if you are like me, when you read John pointing to Jesus' example of love, you can see it as nothing more than that, right? The, the, the plumb line of perfect love, the, the example we should just try to imitate. And it is that. But notice what it says. It says, who laid his life down for us. Now this word for, it doesn't mean as an example for us, just for us to see. It's like a, a securing, purchasing, having for. I'm giving you $5 for the sandwich. So this, this exemplary act of love of Jesus isn't, isn't merely the model of love that we imitate, but it's actually the very creative force that birthed us into this new family of love. We see the same thing if we look back. Verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Self-giving love of the Father, of the Son, is the very thing that made us children in the first place. And we, you know, we nod along and we say, yes, yes, that's, that's Christianity, that's what we believe. But there's a way to read this text today and walk away feeling an anxiety, like an anxiety that says, well, gee whiz, okay, I better start loving the brothers so I'm someone who has passed from death to life. Or, or golly, like, I want God's truth to abide in me, I better not withhold the world's goods from my brother. But do you see that that's flipped? It's like telling a skeleton to make itself alive by starting to exhale. No, you start with the being brought to life and the inhale. And the life 
the breath of the Christian life comes from this. The maker of heaven and earth, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternity past, made an agreement. The Father said, he will be my son. She will be my daughter. Make it so. Now, if this, um, the whole idea of the life within God, within the Trinity, um, is, is new or sounds weird to you, um, I'd encourage you to, to read John 17. We get this interesting little view into the Trinity when Jesus is praying to the Father, getting ready, he's getting ready to, to die and leave the earth. He's praying to the Father. He's making way for the Holy Spirit to come. And in 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says this. He prays this. I do not ask for these only, these here 12 disciples with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So every other person who comes to believe. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, if you feel like your brain starting to push out into the inside of your skull and like wanting to explode, yes. Jesus is like giving us this glimpse, this like peek behind the curtain. Like history is the triune God pouring his life and his love out for you, toward you, on you, and all those that he has chosen, the Son sent to live, die, and purchase these people, the Spirit given to bring them to life and unite them to the Son. And the point of all of this is to draw God's children up, up into the, the infinite, eternal life of love that God has within himself, and that he has been enjoying for eternity past. God abiding in us, us abiding in him by the spirit whom he has given us. The, the point of it all, like the cross, like do you see like it's, it's so much more than just a do-over or a get out of hell free pass. It's more than just a way to like get on the straight and narrow and start living right or like building a nice group of people It's one God and three persons who is like so full to overflowing with this life of self-giving love that he is moved to create and bring others in to experience that in him. Like that is what you're saved for. So if we take a breath back to where we're sitting, we're in this pew, we're hearing the command to love one another. We're hearing this guy talk about who knows what. Um, we don't hear this command to love one another in a vacuum. We hear it in the context of like an entirely new mode of existence, a new world, one where, where, where love brought us alive, love gave us lungs, love breathed life into us. And so as part of this new existence, love is what we exhale. All right, let me close by just trying to bring this down to like 
real life of, I don't know, changing 20 diapers a day. And Is that a lot of diapers? I don't know. Fighting about money, hating your job, parents making you apologize to your siblings. Real life, right? Um, you all know those, like, I don't know, I'm thinking of, like, secret agent-y movies where, you know, there's a couple people, they're trying to infiltrate something, and um, they're in the dark, and they're sneaking, and suddenly one looks at the other, and he points to, like, the red laser pointer on them, and he sees the red dot, and he knows he's in the sights of someone's weapon. He thought he was unseen, he thought he was invisible, his presence unknown, his partner's whispers to him, they got you. But what if everywhere you went, you had that little red dot on you, and it wasn't like a marker of death, but it was the, the aim of God's bottomless life and love, like unflinchingly, untiringly, inexplicably lasered on you. You felt unseen, you felt unknown, but now they got you. And it's with the security, the certainty, and this peace that we go about our lives in love. We ask of our Father. We live freed to offer ourselves to one another, to say, my life for your good. This is what it means to be a child of God. This is the reassurance we are given in doubt from a God who is greater than our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I need so much help to believe that what I just said is true. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. Holy Spirit, help us. Uh, as we come to your table, Jesus, feed us, assure us that it's true. The body and blood tell us it's true. And let us respond with our lives as a pleasing sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.